the, the need to get legislation through the executive in both houses, it, it must be the case that the parties can either come together and compromise or that individual members of the parties float and, and cross the aisle. Two highly polarized parties that, that can't get along, can't work together, cannot make a system of a U.S. style checks and balance system work. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I thought it would be timely to re-release a much earlier episode that I had done, actually episode number 18, uh, where I interviewed Professor Stephen Levitsky on his book, How Democracies Die. I think from social issue point of view, this is one of the driving factors that's making a lot of people uncomfortable right now. And it really speaks to the polarization that we have in our public discourse and in our voting processes and in our courts. Um, I think it's going to be a, a very critical topic of discussion over the next couple of years, whether we want to continue having Western democracies. I think there are forces that are trying to break this down, and I think that Dr. Levitsky gets to the root of it uh, with his co-author, Daniel Zeblatt. Uh, They just released uh, a new book called Saving Democracy, The Tyranny of the Minority, which uh, I'm hoping to snag an interview on and follow up. So I thought it would be good to to go back and and listen to to what he said a couple years ago Uh, so we can compare some of his predictions to what's gone on and see how he's done. This was, of course, before the the January 6th uh, events that happened in the U.S. uh, when they tried to hand over power unsuccessfully or partially successfully. So uh, sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy Today, I'm welcoming Professor Stephen R. Levitsky to the podcast. Stephen Levitsky is the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies and Professor of Government and Director of the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His research focuses on democratization and authoritarianism, political parties, and weak and informal institutions, mostly in Latin America. He is co-author with Daniel Zablat of How Democracies Die, 2018 2018 publication, which was a New York Times bestseller and has been published in 22 languages. He is also author of many books regarding politics and authoritarianism in Latin America. He is currently writing a book with Lucan Wei on the durability of revolutionary regimes. Dr. Levitsky has also written for the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, Vox, The New Republic, and The Monkey Cage, and has written regular columns in La República of Peru and Folha do Sao Paulo in Brazil. Dr. Levitsky, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks. Good to meet you. Good to meet you as well. And thank you for, for coming on my show. Happy could to you, meet you. 
Could you please tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in Latin American governments? I got interested in Latin America because during the, um, when, I, when I was growing up, my high school and college years, Central America were front page. It was, was a front page set of issues in, in the United States. This was the mid-1980s. There had just been a revolution in Nicaragua. There were civil wars going on in Guatemala and El Salvador in the U.S., was centrally involved in those. So I got involved initially as, uh, as an active critic of the Reagan administration's policies in South America. And from there, I uh, went to college, took a couple of classes, had an opportunity to travel to Central America, and just fell in love with Latin America 30 years ago and still going. Oh, very interesting. So I want to focus a little bit on, on your book, How Democracies Die, because I think this is the, the interest uh, of the current situation in the U.S. and the politics and what some people see as a, um, a failure of democracy. There's a, you know, authoritarian tendencies that seem to be showing up. What, what parallels do you see between the current state of U.S. politics and, and maybe historical failures of democracies? There are a number of parallels you could draw. I think the, the, most important, the most central one is um, the consequences of extreme polarization. Uh, we know that one of the things that kills democracies—not not not a a huge number of established democracies—have died in the world. You can count on a couple of hands the the number of really well established democracies that have that have broken down. Um, but looking around. Uh, Uruguay in the early 1970s, Chile in the early 1970s, Spain and Germany, they were not really very established democracies, but European democracies that, that broke down in the 30s, almost all of them were ripped apart by extreme polarization. And that is um, something that has kind of surprised scholars here in the United States, but, but polarization um, has gotten quite extreme over the last 10, 15 years in the U.S., and this is one of the reasons that I started this podcast was to kind of address the polarization that I see. And on the online debate, at least, it's become a circus. There's no, you know, it, yeah. it's, you have isolated echo chambers that are throwing barbs at each other and there's no true uh, discussion, which I think is a lifeblood of democracy. And I feel like the systematic, the systemic inequality and income inequality are driving this unrest in the civilized world. I see ongoing violent Black Lives Matter protests and Trump voters as something akin to nihilism on both sides of the debate. Uh, they just want to see the world burn. It seems like there's a lot of disenfranchised people in society that want to break the system. And I don't know if they're going to be successful or not. Why are people so highly polarized, in your opinion? Uh, that is a great question. And um, I think that you pointed to one of them. You pointed to income inequality, which is uh, income inequality and um, income inequality has increased and social mobility has declined considerably. The ability of people to really for the first time uh, in anybody's living memory, uh, people's kids are not don't have the same prospects that they had, which in the United States is almost unthinkable. This, this rise in inequality has uh, is observable across the Western industrialized world. It's a bit it's it's worse in the U.S. than in some European social democracies, but it's it's a it's a common factor across the uh, the industrialized West. I think another factor, though, um, and almost certainly more important in the U.S. is um, 
is race and the response to mm-hmm. growing racial diversity um, and racial equality. The, the, the polarization, the partisan polarization in the United States, most scholars of U.S. politics trace its origins to the, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, mid-60s, which began the partisan realignment, which began to shift Southern conservative voters from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Um, and that, that sort of began the process of polarization. What, where we, there is almost no class difference in, in the vote anymore between Democrats and Republicans, between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. There's, there's virtually no difference in the income level of the average voter. Hmm. Uh, the Trump voter was slightly, slightly wealthier than the, the average Clinton voter, but it's a very weak relationship. What, the, the real distinguishing factor between uh, Democrats and Republicans these days is, uh, is, is race and culture. If you are um, white, not college-educated and religious, you're almost certain to be Republican. Uh, if you are urban, uh, secular, and non-white, you're almost certain to be Democrat. And um, the, the reason that's polarizing, that doesn't have to be polarizing, but the reason it's polarizing, I think, is... Uh, that we're going through a really distinctive, almost unique phenomenon or process in the United States, which is that a previously dominant ethnic group or previous, previously dominant cultural group is losing its majority status in, in two senses. It's losing its electoral majority, it's losing its, its yeah. numerical majority, but it's also losing its dominant status in society. And that's a really threatening thing. Uh, many Republican voters will tell you that the country that they grew up in is they feel like the country that, being, that they grew up in is being taken away from them. That's a very threatening thing. Uh, that, that's not just disagreeing over tax policy or disagreeing over your uh, over health reform. This is feeling like the, your country is being taken from you. Um, and so that's that's what I think the best scholarship on that I've seen on, on American politics suggests is at the root of this polarization. Now it's exacerbated by income inequality. Um, you know, if we, if we had policies in place, um, that allowed for those who are, uh, losing their dominant social status had a future, their kids had a future, they had decent jobs, they could aspire to, to gain something in the years to come, I think they'd be less angry, be less prone to the kind of nihilistic, um, attitudes that you pointed to. Yeah. It's easy to see this other as as a target. Uh, they're taking our jobs. They're taking, you know, it's, you need to find a scapegoat to blame. And, and the authoritarianism gives you that xenophobia and that need to, or, you know, it gives an outlet for that fear and that angst, I think. So it's both social mobility, but also inequality. I mean, blue state elites um, are living in an utterly different world, right? Wait, here, we didn't really suffer the, the financial crisis 2008, 2009. Our, our incomes continued to boom. We have, uh, you know, cultural tastes and material tastes that are completely out of line with the rest of the country. And, and that generates resentment as well. So that's another, mm-hmm. that's another element of inequality. Now, on another note, um, in Canada, we have an ele- unelected Senate, but it has become kind of a purely partisan appointment over the years from, from the, the prime minister and people are pushing to abolish or reform the system and make Canada Senate another elected body similar to the U.S. In the U.S., many people feel that the electoral college is an undemocratic institution. 
Yet in your book, you defend the role of unelected bodies as gatekeepers in defending democracy. And this, I think, seems counterintuitive to most people. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, we're not big fans of the Electoral College. Um, I think the Electoral College has become, it, 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 the Electoral College served its, its, its design purpose for about four years in U.S. history. It almost immediately became uh, a useless, essentially vestigial element, something that just existed but didn't really have a, a purpose and didn't, wasn't very consequential either way. But it's now become consequential. Um, because it is a distinctly counter-majoritarian and even anti-majoritarian institution. This is, I should be very clear, this is not the Republican Party's fault, but the Republican Party benefits enormously from the Electoral College. The Electoral College is biased towards sparsely populated states. Um, it's a, it's a slight bias, but it's a real bias. And, um, for most of American history, that didn't matter because both parties had urban and rural wing. Both parties had um, among their base sparsely populated territory. Only in the last 20 years, really the last 10 or 15 years, the parties have become divided over uh, on the urban rural dimension. The, the Republicans are the party of sparsely populated territories and the Democrats are the party of the big cities. Um, the issue with that is it gives a, a multi-point advantage to the Republican Party in presidential elections. So it's now becoming... Um, you know, there, there is a there is a pretty significant chance that Donald Trump loses the popular vote by a healthy margin this year and yet wins the presidency again. That is going to have uh, to deal a body blow to the le legitimacy of our electoral system. Mm -hmm. You'll see more of those nihilists in the streets. So the, <laughs> the, the, the electoral college, I think, is is not the is not the right gatekeeper. The gatekeeper that Ziblatt and I point to is political parties. Okay. And political parties are elected. Political parties put their candidates up for office. And the leaders of political parties, those who we argue ought to be selecting the candidates, are generally elected officials. So this is not some unelected body. Okay, good. Um, but we do think that, that it, it is useful to have experienced politicians have a say in the selection of candidates. Mm -hmm. And you think that this this is something that in the past has stopped authoritarian or dictator-type folks getting through to the uh, candidacy? It's had a perfect record. Now, the old, the, 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 the way that, that American parties selected candidates prior to 1972, basically the old smoke-filled back room in the convention, had all sorts of serious problems. Um, it was it was not transparent. It wasn't very democratic. Turns out it wasn't very inclusionary either. It was, you know, basically a bunch of uh, pretty well connected white guys. And so there were there were real limitations to the old system, and it really did need to be reformed. But that system had a perfect record in keeping demagogues out. For better and worse, it had a perfect record in keeping out. Demagogues. Hmm. But in, in part because these guys know the candidates. They know, um, they, they've worked with these guys. They know who, who, who is, who is basically a BSer and who is not. Um, you know, the closest parallels to, to Trump that we could find probably in, in U.S. history were, um, Henry Ford, who was a, a very wealthy, uh, kind of eccentric figure, very, very popular, especially 
in the Midwest, thought about running for president in, in 1924, but it became very clear that the parties were not going to nominate him. Political party leads were not going to, to nominate him, for better or worse. He was you know, pretty anti-Semitic and, and dallied with, with fascist ideas, so I think it's a pretty good idea that he was not, that he was you know, effectively screened out. The other guy is uh, George Wallace, who came a little closer to the presidency than, than Henry Ford, um, but again, couldn't get near, had to run as a third party candidate in mm. eight in order to, to compete because he wasn't going to be able to get any major party nomination. So, I mean, the U.S. has been a, a bastion of freedom and democracy for, you know, centuries. And many people think that it couldn't be at risk of becoming autocratic. It's, you know, it's special. Is, is the U.S. special in this way? Is the system set up to to prevent failure? Um, the system is set up pretty well. The system is set up to to prevent some failures, but not others. Right? There are many ways to die. There are many ways to become dysfunctional, and uh, so our our system is set up um, pretty brilliantly in, in a variety of ways. But it's not set up, for example, to deal with highly disciplined, polarized parties. Our system of checks and balances cannot function well with two parties that are, are, are highly polarized and, uh, and, and purely disciplined. Because it's basically set up our, our system of, of, of two houses of Congress um, and the, the, the need to get legislation through the executive in both houses. It, it must be the case that the parties can either come together and compromise or that individual members of the parties float and, and cross the aisle. Uh, two highly polarized parties that, that can't get along, can't work together, cannot make a system of a U.S. style checks and balance system work. Now, your earlier point about is the U.S. special, is the U.S. sort of invulnerable? I think that's one of the dangers is that all of us, I mean, myself included, and I study this for a living, if you'd asked us five years ago, all of us took U.S. democracy for granted. We took the stability of U.S. democracy for granted. We figured that no matter how recklessly we voted, no matter how recklessly we behaved, no matter how recklessly our politicians behaved, they couldn't possibly break American democracy. That seemed impossible. Um, and look, there's some social science behind that. The, it, we think we know two things in political science, at least empirically. Old democracies never die, and rich democracies never die. The, uh, the breakdown rate of both old and rich democracies is close to zero. Um, but so the question is, are we in new terrain? And I think there's some reason to think that we are. I mean, levels of inequality, as you pointed out at the beginning, are higher than any time since before the Great Depression. Um, and this, this phenomenon that I pointed to of a once dominant ethnic majority losing its dominant status is also new and, and pretty unprecedented. There's not a democracy in history that's gone through that that transition. So um, I actually think that we are in new terrain. I think there, there's nothing, you know, the United States is a, is a is a rich, powerful country with a pretty distinctive political culture, but there's nothing unique about the United States. All the patterns that we see in the U.S. can be found elsewhere. Hmm. You mentioned in your book that several norms of the U.S. government system, unwritten rules have been violated by both parties. 
Um, the Republican governor of Georgia acted as chief elections officer in his own election. I mean, I don't even know if that's legal. Can you review some legal. of these? <laughs> wow. And, you know, gerrymandering seems to be, you know, in my civics course, I was told this is something that you should not expect in a healthy democracy. Yet this is common policy now in the U.S. as far as I can tell. Can you review some of these breakdowns and and give us some perspective on where this is headed? Yeah, well, if I knew where this was headed, I would have a much better paying job. But um, (laughs) look, the, the U.S. is, because it's such an old democracy, because it's been stable for so long, and because we could take so much of it for granted, and because our parties weren't very polarized, and so therefore the stakes in politics were relatively low, we rely a ton on informal norms, or to put it another way, on on the self-restraint of of politicians. If you look at Brazilian democracy or German democracy or uh, really any democracy that that was born in in the 20th or 21st century, they're likely to have a slew of rules, of formal rules that, that very clearly and formally constrain behavior that say elections are run like this and this and this, and politicians are allowed to do X and Y. They're not allowed to do Z, uh, Z, A, B. The U.S. doesn't have much of that. We have a very small, very short, limited constitution. Uh, we have a very decentralized polity. And we, we, we actually don't have a large number of rules stating you can't do that. And we have survived. And this is um, this goes back a long way in history. Just to give one example, we uh, it wasn't until the 1940s that we took seriously the idea of a formal two-term limit in the presidency. The, anybody could have been president for life, just like Hugo Chavez, until 1947. Um, but but after George Washington, we went 150 years, and no no politician uh, went there and went for the third term. The point is that we our system relies. Not on rules that say you can't do this, but politicians restraining themselves. Um, you know, it's it's actually pretty easy to you know to, in some in some localities to stuff ballot boxes, uh, to to commit fraud. We now know it's very easy to um, to get away with all sorts of conflicts of interest in, in the presidency to make a ton of money out of the presidency. Um, we know that it's possible to pardon your friends. It's, it's, it's possible to have people do criminal work for you and then you turn around and pardon them. Um, there's no rules against this stuff uh, or the rules are ambiguous. We relied on self restraint And so all it took was one, a highly polarized polity, which gets people into sort of a uh, um, any means necessary mentality because you hate the other guys so much you're willing to pull out all the stops to beat them. So both both parties are in this sort of win at all cost, any means necessary uh, mode of thinking. And secondly, a, a politician or an individual like Trump, who you know never never met a norm, he wasn't willing to, to break. If there's one thing that characterizes Donald Trump, it's that it's an absence of self restraint. And so you put somebody in power who doesn't give a crap about uh, about norms, who, who does not restrain himself, who will use the letter of the law to the max whenever he can. And suddenly our system, which seemed to work so well for 200 plus years, looks like it's a mess. Mm, yeah. Now, <clears throat> the Repo- <clears throat> excuse me. 
The Republicans have violated a longstanding norm of government in blocking Obama's Supreme Court nominee. Um, you mentioned that this has never happened before in the U.S. Um, it, it happened right after the Civil War. It hadn't happened okay. since the 1960s. Okay. The courts, though, still seem independent. Uh, the U.S. has a strong independent court system at the present time. However, as we see, Trump's 2016 campaign team have all been indicted by courts. Um, this is a hopeful sign, I think. Uh, however, any significant challenges will now end up at a stacked Supreme Court. Um, I can foresee if there are electoral improprieties in the upcoming election, these could be ignored by the top court. Is this likely? Uh, well, that that's the big question. So, look, the U.S. has... Um, U.S. democracy is hard to kill, right? We're in, in, we're sliding into crisis. We are, we've, we've experienced backsliding in, in, in some ways, but the United States still has a number of really strong institutions, federal institutions and, um, uh, state agencies where we, we still continue to have a number of professionals doing their job, uh, regardless of, of who appointed them. And as you pointed out, the courts, the judiciary continues to be highly professional. And, uh, and, and, and quite independent. Um, this is not to say that, you know, in, in four, eight or 12 years, this couldn't be eroded, but thus far, you're right. We still have a, a, a fair amount of judicial independence. Um, big question will come. We, we now have, it's, there's now a perception, you know, among at least in half the country that we have a, um, a Supreme Court with a 5-4 majority that was effectively stolen. The, the, the court does not have the same legitimacy that it had, for example, in 2000, when we had an electoral dispute that was decided by by the Supreme Court. Um, that was a, a ruling that for Democrats really sucked. It was it was disputed. It was disputable. It may well have been the fact that that there was a five four conservative majority that it went to 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 Bush, but Americans accepted that ruling, in part because Al Gore accepted the ruling, um, but in part because it was still a pretty legitimate Supreme Court, conservative or not, the, the, the way that, that those nine individuals got there was widely viewed to be clean, legitimate, and so we all as a society accepted that ruling, even those, those who didn't like it. I think 2020 is probably a different game. We, we're, we're facing a situation where there's a good chance that one or more states will have disputes. There's a good chance that Trump will not behave like Gore, that he that he won't accept defeat, that he'll, that he'll claim fraud. There's a good chance it sends up in the courts because that's really we don't. The U.S. doesn't have a set of um, established electoral authorities to deal at the at the national level with electoral disputes, so it will end up in the court. What if it's a five-four ruling in favor of of Trump? Um, I I I don't know how legitimate that's going to appear now. You know, Roberts, to his credit, seems to take very seriously the the reputation and the integrity of the Supreme Court. He's obviously conservative, but um, his vote is not assured. So one could also imagine a dispute that ends up five four in favor of Biden with uh, um, with Roberts joining the the liberals. So um, it's certainly not a guarantee. This is not a, a court that is so packed that we know automatically in advance how to rule. But if there's a five four ruling for Trump after this, after the the the, the theft of Merrick Garland's seat or the seat that he was that he was nominated for, um, 
that's going to be that's going to be another body blow to the legitimacy of our of our institutions. Again, our our democracy will not die quickly. It's too way too strong for that. Um, but we've suffered a series of blows over the last five years that have weakened it. And um, you know, if we have a severe electoral crisis in 2020, which is entirely possible, that will be another another major blow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now. You can see that the the Republican regime are suggesting delaying elections now, and they're well. Trump said that uh, that that seems less likely. Good, <laughs> and and there's you know talk about um, casting doubt on mail in ballots and trying to call into question the legitimacy of the electoral process, uh, presumably to set the scenes for one of these Supreme Court challenges. So yeah. <clears throat> That's that's somewhat frightening, I guess. I mean, the situation is frightening. We we see secret police abducting political opponents in unmarked vehicles in Portland. Um, if this were a small Central American country, the U.S. would invade to restore order. As a Canadian, this is worrying. Should we invade? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> I was. Uh, it, it it it's it's very worrisome. It's very worrisome. I think in you shouldn't invade because I think in the in the medium to long run, the prospects for to consolidate a dictatorship on either side are, are very low. I think that the Republicans uh, could there's a good chance that they create a hell of a crisis in 2020. There's some chance, some chance that Trump is able to sort of steal this election broadly defined uh, through, you know, if, if uh, particularly through the, the, the mail, the voting, the, the, the vote by mail process, right? If, if that gets difficult and there are a, it's, it's very clear, at least surveys show that uh, Democrats are disproportionately the ones who are voting by mail and Republicans in person. So if, 10% uh, or 15 or 20% of the ballots by mail end up not counting. They don't get there in time because the, the post office was slowed. They were unprepared. They were ill-prepared to deal with the influx of, of ballots. Um, they're, they're not filled out correctly, so they're discarded. And if, if we lose 10, 20% of the mail-in votes, which is possible, and, mail, and Democrats are overwhelmingly represented among mail-in votes, um, Biden could be ahead by six points on the day before the election and lose the election. I mean, and, and, and there's nothing, there's no smoking gun illegality there either. Um, yeah. so there, there, there are scenarios where Trump could, even though he's clearly behind, let's say six, seven, eight points, somehow wins the election or retains the presidency, um, which, which would put us in a, you know, a, 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 a borderline authoritarian situation in the short term. I think in the medium term, those guys, the Republicans don't have, the distribution of power in American society doesn't favor them. The, the vast bulk of the cultural, social, and economic capital in the country is um, the, the military, unlike Latin America, the reason artwork that I study the military is not going to weigh in on the favor on, on the side of the Republicans. The bulk, you know, increasingly the bulk of the most important, the most dynamic capital in the country is actually uh, 
sympathetic to the Democrats. The, the numbers favor the Democrats. Most of the media is uh, at least um, not not particularly rep- either independent or or uh, or more favorable to the Democrats. So it's that underlying balance of power makes a makes a scenario like Hungary or or Turkey or Venezuela or Russia really hard to fathom. Uh, there's just too much, too many numbers, too much money, too much cultural capital, too much organization in the opposition. We have a very the Democrats may, may not win the 2020 election, but they are a very strong opposition by comparative standards, um, which I think means that we're, we're, not, we're likely not headed into uh, long-term dictatorship or, or fascism. What we may be headed into, and which could affect Canadians, is just dysfunctionality. And we, we're, we're not able... To function, I mean, there nowhere is as clearer than in the response to COVID nineteen, right? We our, our our society and our government at the federal level couldn't deal. We just couldn't deal with COVID nineteen. We couldn't respond effectively. We're the only, really, the only rich democracy on earth that couldn't respond minimally effectively to to COVID nineteen. And so, you know, you guys share a big border with us, so our dysfunctionality may. Um, no joking aside, may may have real consequences. Yeah, the, yeah, we're definitely uh, subject to what happens down there. You mentioned in your book that you know, and this was when it, it came out before the COVID crisis, that we should be on the lookout for a crisis that the president will use to strengthen his popular support. And obviously, the COVID crisis has not done that. That was been horribly fumbled. Um, although it has been used to suggest the, the delaying of elections by Trump himself. Should we expect a new crisis to be fomented in the coming months to try and shore up his support? Um, there are there are some very smart people in the United States who are worried about that. Who are worried about uh, a, a, a war um, between now and November? Um, you know, one one advantage we small D Democrats have in the case of Trump is he's not a very um, He's a pretty inept autocrat. He, he's not very smart. He's not very experienced. He lacks anything in the way of discipline and he lacks organization. Um, you know, if we, if, if we had, uh, Viktor Orban or, uh, Erdogan or Putin or Hugo Chavez in the presidency of the United States, they would do much more damage, I think, than Trump. Yeah. He doesn't seem to sa- sacrifice and inspire the sort of, uh, blind loyalty of, you know, give your life kind of thing that some of these other autocrats did. But he also, he doesn't plan. He doesn't, he's not disciplined. He's never on message. Um, it's, it's hard for him to develop and implement any kind of a plan or even a strategy. And I think, um, that's weakened him. And I think that, and to, to the benefit of, of democracy. So I think that makes a, um, a well thought out planned crisis, which is a high risk strategy, right? It's a very risky strategy. I think it makes it less likely. Um, I think it's, it's going to be hard for him without leaks, without mistakes to plan, let's say, in a, a war in, in Iran. I think it's more likely that he'll try to create chaos uh, or allow, I mean, it, it's a phenomenon that I, that I call malign neglect. The, the, you're right. He didn't use COVID as an excuse like Orban did in Hungary to sort of to shut down Congress or to, to concentrate power. 
but he's allowed COVID to, to create crisis, right? I mean, um, you know, there may well be cities where the infection is rampant on election day. And we rely in the United States on largely on retirees as volunteers to man the, 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 the polling places. Um, in cities where the, where the, where the infection is rampant, people aren't going to show up. They're, they're going to have to close down polling places. This happened in some of the primaries. I think Trump is relying on, we call it, Ziblatt and I call it malign neglect, that a crisis hits, a number of steps need to be taken to protect people's health and to protect the vote, right? If we're going to vote, we need to prepare, we need to invest ahead of time to ensure that everybody can vote by mail in a pandemic or to ensure that people can vote safely in person. Um, the government presumably knew that and basically did nothing because they're betting on chaos. They're betting on a chaotic, low turnout election. I think that, and I think if there's any October surprise that Trump is going to try to pull off, it may be a vaccine, uh, a rollout of, of, of a vaccine. But there are people worried about a war. Mm-hmm. So... We're in this troubling time and we see that the polarization is, is, is hurting our democracies. You noted in your book that the Republican Party is mainly responsible for eroding the norms of democracy. Yet you argue that, that the Democrats should be taking the high road and not tit for tat striking back. Is this a route to recovery? I don't know. Um, it's, a, it's a tough question. We get a lot of pushback for that that part of our, of our argument. Um, the truth is, and I've actually, I've talked to, to members of the opposition in, in a number of countries that are in similar places, similar situations, the opposition in, in Turkey, the opposition in Hungary, the opposition in Venezuela, the opposition in Peru, and Fukimori was in power in the 90s. When um, you have an elected leader or an elected party that breaks the rules, and sort of takes the is the first mover in stepping away from democracy. The opposition is left with a very difficult set of choices. A, a, a really, it's really in a, in a fundamentally in a lose lose situation. So either you um, you continue to play by the norms to to to, to protect the the institutions, and you get rolled, you get steamrolled, or you fight back. Uh, you know, you put your boxing gloves on, you fight back. Uh, maybe breaking the rules, maybe twisting the rules, maybe uh, yeah, uh, using violence, civil disobedience. And two things can happen. One, that radicalism can be used as an excuse to crack down further. Because remember, they're the guys with the guns, not you, um, or not, not, not us in opposition. And that happened in Venezuela. The, Venez- the Venezuelan opposition, the very early, very first years of Chavez, before he'd even done much, uh, tried to, to organize a coup against him, tried to bring him down via mass mass protest, a general strike. They tried to just shut him down before he'd even uh, gotten halfway through his presidency. And that was an excuse for him to crack down, to accelerate the crackdown. The other thing that fighting back dirty uh, can do is just accelerate the process of, of decline. So if you've got a strong democracy that you could lose, that is still sort of hang in there and you could lose, fighting dirty could just accelerate the, the, the loss. And that's why Ziblatt and I thought, given the strength of 
of U.S. institutions, given the how difficult it is to rebuild those institutions once you lose them, as long as a, there's a viable institutional channel, courts, first of all, elections, secondly, that, that the opposition should use those channels. Um, it, we, we calculated, and I, I, I think it's still right. I mean, you, I may be proven wrong on November 4th, 2020, but our calculation was the Democrats still had a, that the, the least bad option is to play by the rules and win by the rules. And, um, and that avenue, that, that channel still existed, still exists in the United States. So if, if Biden wins the presidency, the Democrats win control of the Senate, um, that's not going to be a panacea for American democracy by a long shot, but, um, that will, that will be a major step towards resolving the, the imminent crisis of our democracy. And I think that that's still a viable option. As long as it's a viable option, the, the least bad strategy is to, is to, to play institutionally. Okay. <clears throat> so this, this is a, an interesting discussion. Um, and I think what people are interested in is solutions. Like what should we be doing? How can we help the situation? A lot of people feel powerless and overwhelmed by the chaos and, and hopeless. Um, what, what's your outlook? Um, what should Canadians be doing or what should Americans be doing? Americans, good, good. I mean, um, it's, it's a tough, I mean, look, there are, uh, there are, are short and medium term answers to that. Um, and, and Americans have done a lot. I mean, it's, it's really worth pointing out that ever since that a, a lot has happened since 2016. Um, as as much as as from the from the perspective of the opposition, as much as Trump has gotten away with, he's also been um, stymied quite a bit. the The level of um, of activism and protest, not just the George Floyd protests, but, but before then, the, the level of organization, um, both electoral and non-electoral, has increased considerably since 2016. Many Americans have gotten involved in politics. They've joined groups uh, of, of various types and uh, and become active, and it's had an impact. The 2000, uh, again, we are an electoral democracy, so the primary source of power continues to be elections. The 2018 election was a very important election. Um, it, it, it was a major setback for, for Trump. It gave the House to, to the opposition party. Um, and m- my colleague, Theda Scotchpole, has been studying uh, four communities in the heartland ever since 2016. And she finds, particularly among middle-aged, middle-class women, um, a major upsurge in political participation organizing, running campaigns, getting into politics, running for office, a big burst of energy. And so part of the answer is Americans are already doing it. They, they felt um, they were scared, they were, were appalled, and they got involved. Secondly, obviously, people have to vote. It's harder this year to vote because of the pandemic. It's harder to vote uh, because in many states, Republicans are, are, are making it harder to vote. But... Um, Voting and making sure other people have the opportunity, the ability to vote is, is really critical. I think in the, in the medium term, um, the U.S. has to take steps to democratize the democracy. Um, we have to take steps to make it much, much easier to vote. The fact that, that, um, 
less than half the country votes in midterm elections and, and maybe 57, 58 percent vote in presidential elections is abominable. And we've got to we've got to take, we've got to pass legislation that makes it much easier to register, much easier to vote and that gives every American an equal opportunity to do that. So it's not just easier for people like me to vote than it is for people who say don't have a driver's license. Um, that's a, that's a, that's, that's, that's an obvious step in terms of democracy, but it's also at the same time will benefit the, not just the democratic party, but they're just take a half step back. Broadly speaking, there are two coalitions in, in the United States that are, that are almost at war with one another. There is what Ron Brownstein calls a, a restorationist coalition, which is the uh, essentially the white Christian base that's losing its majority and, and is, and is um, uh, fighting tooth and nail to hold on to it. And there is what Brownstein calls a cosmopolitan coalition, which is this sort of weird conglomeration of everybody else, uh, urban people, educated white folks, uh, secular voters, and uh, a, a wide range of non-white voters. And that coalition is a majority. It's, I don't to be somewhat arbitrary, it's about 53% of the country. Um, it's having trouble winning national power because of the way that it's distributed geographically, because of the electoral system, because of the electoral college. Um, the, the, the courts are starting to, to be stacked against that cosmopolitan majority. But we, our democracy really requires that, we, that that majority come to power. Um, and it get, uh, expanding voting, may, may t- creating a situation where 75% of the country is voting rather than 55% would speed up that process, would, would enhance our ability to, um, to get to some semblance of majority rule. Right now, we're being governed by the 43% um, that Trumpism represents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, 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 I like your point about the, um, the mobilization of groups that previously hadn't been involved in the democratic pr- process. I mean, my position has always been that the price of democracy is a well-informed and involved electorate. And so, at least that's one bright spot in this is that people are becoming motivated to take notice about what's going on in the, in the government where previously it, it didn't affect them. And I think, yeah. you know, part of the reason is that there's been this demonization of expertise and knowledge by politicians um, and demonization of the press and, uh, you know, all of these, I think, which are pillars of democracy, you know, expertise in the press and... <laughs> And so it, it's, there's, you know, it's good and bad. It's good that there are people getting involved. It's, it's bad that they have to be involved because things are going south. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, you're right. We are, we are suffering. This is one of the reasons why we failed so badly on the COVID-19 front is the vilification of, of expertise. Um, but that is populism. That's classic populism. And the Republican Party has, under Trump, become, even before Trump, but but under Trump, it has really consolidated itself as a populist party in the sense that it is an anti-elite political party. It's a party that mobilizes people by railing against the elite. And the elite, uh, it, it can mean Wall Street, it can mean politicians, and it can mean expert, public health experts. It means college professors like me, or, uh, and it means journalists. 
And the Republican Party increasingly, its message is don't believe any of those guys. They're all out to get you. Mm-hmm. And which is dangerous, as you as you pointed out. Yeah, so um, I think we're re- reaching the end of our time slot here. I'd just uh, like to thank you for, for joining me on the show and providing your, your inputs and your expertise. So this is really an interesting discussion. Um, any last words on, on what you see uh, coming up and what we should be aware of? Uh, just tell the Canadians to hold off on their invasion at least till <laughs> November 3rd. Give us, give us one more chance. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let the Prime Minister know. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Lutsky. Uh, sure, it's great to, great to be on the, on the program. Take care. Yeah, you too. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.